I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi there and welcome to Stock Club, a podcast brought to you by My Wall Street. I'm James and joining me in today's episode are Rory and Emmett from the My Wall Street Analyst team. Today, we're talking about the potential for Amazon to buy Teladoc, what's going on in the iBuying industry, and the reasons why Shopify is down more than 60% since November. So guys, welcome, welcome to this week's Stock Club. We have a big agenda. Rory, you warned me before we came on air here that if, if we get through all your notes, this podcast could, could be an hour. So let's get straight into things. I like the response was that I should talk at 1.5x speed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's really like an adaption from the the advent of WhatsApp voice notes. That when one of your friends is like telling you something on WhatsApp, you can just speed up the conversation, which is a it's a brilliant feature. I wish you could bring it into real life conversations. <laughs> but let's kick off this podcast with a sentence that I haven't had a chance to say in quite a while, which is Teladoc stock was up this week. So investors cheered the telehealth company after a new partnership with Amazon was announced earlier in the week. According to the press release, this first of its kind, and that's in quotation marks, experience will see Teladoc provide voice activated general medical virtual care on Amazon Alexa devices like the Echo and the Echo Dot. So essentially what customers customers will be able to do is say, Alexa, I want to talk to a doctor and your Amazon device will then get them connected with a Teladoc call center. Emmett, I'm going to come over to you on this first. So on the surface, there was a lot of investor excitement about this partnership, but it seems pretty light touch to me. What's your initial thoughts on it? Is this, a, is this really a game changer as investors seem to think this week? Well, I like it, James, because it further demonstrates to the world, as it were, that Teladoc is the clear leader in the space and that it's not easy to replicate what Teladoc has done. And it also widens the awareness and uptake of telemedicine, which better still is powered by Teladoc. Yeah, absolutely. So in the past, and I think I think what a lot of people were thinking is in the past, Teladoc has been impacted multiple times by rumors of Amazon moving into its space. So even most recently, I think last month, there was a big drop because there was uh, because Amazon was um, rolling out its Amazon Care, which is its own telehealth service, was rolling it out nationwide. So now that Amazon are teaming up with Teladoc, what should we make of tele- of Amazon's own healthcare ambitions? Hmm. Well, can I back it up for a minute, James, and just remind our listeners about who Teladoc are and where they are at the moment before diving into Amazon's ambitions, as you say. Um, they are so Teladoc's mission is to empower all people everywhere to live their healthiest lives by transforming the healthcare experience. So that's their top line mission. And when I look at their stock today, uh, as an awful lot of our listeners will know, it's been quite the roller coaster over the last three years or so. Its market cap, as we record, is about twelve billion dollars. Um, it's still not profitable. Um. It has 76 million members. It has 12,000 clients and um, about 10,000 providers. And in fact, sorry, let me correct myself. They, they just turned, pro- they, no, no, they're not profitable. Sorry, they're not profitable. They're just beating analyst ex- uh, expectations. But when I look at the last four years, the revenue has grown like gangbusters. And 
uh, and they have some really solid growth planned and they have expressed their growth at, uh, outlook uh, as something like between 25 and 30% CAGR between now and 2024. So Teladoc is the clear leader in telemedicine. Now, and obviously a lot a of year, that was fueled by the recent pandemic and, and you know, it was one of, definitely one of those pandemic darlings. Oh, it was absolutely no question about that. Um, and about a year and a half ago, I think, as we discussed here on Stock Club, Teladoc bought uh, Lavongo, which is a, a data-based health coaching program for people with diabetes. And what they can do is share their blood glu- glu- glucose records with certified diabetes educators. And they paid $18.5 billion, which I'm sure you'll remember, which is way more than a combined entity is worth today. Anyway, yeah. as you say, Amazon and Teladoc are starting a voice-assisted virtual care program that lets customers get medical help without picking up their phones. And the service uh, is for health issues that are not emergencies and will be available, of course, around the clock on Amazon's Echo devices. So customers can tell the voice assistant, Alexa, that they want to talk to a doctor and that will prompt a call back on the device to a Teladoc physician. And I think it's, it's particularly interesting because Customers with or without health insurance can now access this type of healthcare. And Amazon has a history in healthcare, um, or at least giving it a go since around 2017, uh, when it created a business with the strange name of uh, 1492, uh, which is, or at least was, a secretive development lab. And at that time, there was speculation that Amazon was developing a platform for medical records and patient data and a telehealth platform and health apps for Amazon devices. And effectively, they were out to build Teladoc. Then a year later or so in 2018, Amazon, uh, I think it was called the Comprehend Medical, launched. And it was a cloud-based service that uses machine learning to extract health data from medical text uh, you know, such as doctor's notes and clinical reports and patient health records. And then a further year later, they acquired online pharmacy PillPack, which I, I know yeah. we discussed here. Yeah, you'll remember that one. It also acquired in the same year Health Navigator, a startup that develops APIs for digital healthcare services. Oh, and then in 2019, the NHS, our next, uh, over the water and our next door neighbor in the UK, announced a partnership at Amazon to enable elderly people and blind people and other patients who can't, you know, easily search the web uh, to do so through Alexa. So you can really see the trajectory here. Yeah, and absolutely. But it sounds like Amazon has really been trying to beef up its its healthcare and, and its its reach into that industry. So why make this partnership with Teladoc? Why not do mm. it themselves as they seem to to be building up the resources to do? But you're dead right, because only, I think it was last year in 2020, Amazon Care launched, which was a medical care program for the company's employees. And it offered, you know, face-to-face and telehealth services. And they kind of said, we're going to roll out across the whole of America. And as far as I recall, they plan to roll out the Amazon Care uh, package or, or, or software um, to all 50 states. Um, and I'm not too sure how that is going, to be honest. But when you go to Amazon.care on the web, you see that not only is it very similar to Teladoc in its offering, it has the same brand colors, which I suppose is a conversation unto itself. But, you know, to your question, to see, to assess if an acquisition may happen, we need to remind ourselves of what are the motivations 
for an acquisition. Well, I and actually the, hadn't asked if there was going to be an acquisition yet, but I think it's very clear uh, that's where the conversation was going. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Okay. So there you go. I super, you know, telepathically, I superposed a question <laughs> into your mind. And they, so you're, yeah, okay. Thank you. Why don't you ask me now? Let's just keep this okay. formal. <laughs> so, Emmett, <laughs> Emmett, do you think Amazon are going to acquire Teladoc? Let's just cut straight to the chase. Uh, that's so funny. Well, I think straight, that, straight I mean, in, no kissing. Straight. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, so there's there are six reasons why um a business uh is acquired or why a company would acquire another business, and that's value creation where you know the two companies have something that's bigger when combined. The second is diversification, and as as most people know, diversification generally means a new product or service or entry into a new market. The third reason is acquiring assets. The fourth reason a company might acquire another is it increases its financial capacity, whether it it reduces costs or increases its revenue or whatever. The fifth reason generally that a company will acquire another is for tax purposes, you know, so if we buy you and we hand you this money and you hand us that money and we route it through your account over there, we can make a whole pile of savings. And then the sixth reason, I guess, is incentives for managers and, and, and the key stakeholders and owners of the business. So there's six reasons why a company, you know, if you open the MBA textbook, why acquisitions happen. And I think that Amazon's acquisition of Teladoc could or would satisfy at least four or five of the six criteria. So, so, so yes, I think it's a distinct possibility, especially when you consider the strategic intent as evident since 2017. Yeah, absolutely. And the fact as well that I think Teladoc's market cap has contracted by nearly 75% in the last nine months. Surely it's looking like a massive bargain. Now, you mentioned they bought Livongo uh, a mm -hmm. few years back and you know their market cap now is, is smaller than both of those companies combined like what like it, it's surely a massive bargain on the table that amazon are looking at mm, i think so i really do uh you know maybe geopolitical tensions um that are prevalent in the world today vis-a-vis -vis the illegal invasion of ukraine and the horrific events that are being perpetrated um might further kind of destabilize markets but i think uh, in half one of this year we it is an absolute unbelievable buying opportunity for Teladoc. So whether it's Amazon buying Teladoc or whether it's a retail investor buying Teladoc, I think yeah. I never expected it to be suppressed down to these prices. And I totally acknowledge that the coronavirus tailwind as it, as it was um, has passed, but we're left with a business that is in, in absolutely miraculously good shape and has projected 25 to 30% CAGR for the next few years. So I do think yeah. that it's it is at a very very uh, favorable buyer's price at the moment. But what do we think about this as Teladoc investors? Um, you know, it's a company within the Horizon portfolio. It's a company within my Wall Street. Rory, open this uh, the question up to you as well. Surely, as Teladoc bulls, we would hate to see Amazon buying Teladoc. I would be pretty upset about it. Yeah, and I mean, I think I go back to the question you had earlier, James, which is like, why doesn't Amazon just do this themselves? And the reason is they can't. Um, they can't. Okay. replicate what Teladoc has done over the last couple of years um, in terms of the relationship they've built with providers with, with hospitals um, and the network they've built out. Um, you know, we, we look back at that Livongo transaction and think, God, they really paid a hefty price for that. But that's building out. They're, they're, what they were doing, I think, was really protecting themselves against what Amazon is doing, which is trying to commoditize telehealth medicine. Um, so I think, you know, telehealth still looks like a very promising business to me. Yeah, mm. absolutely. Would you agree, Emmett? Very much so. I mean, Teladoc has a very bright future on its own. I'd far prefer them 
being left to fulfill their own destiny than seeing it taken seeing it taken off the table by Amazon or anyone else. So my Wall Street says back off Amazon. <laughs> I'm sure I'm sure they'll listen to us. Um, let's move on then. And the topic of eye buying has been a recurring one on this podcast, to say the least. So since its beginnings a couple of years ago, we've seen huge successes and massive failures in this disruptive industry, most notably Zillow's pivot in and then pivot out of eye buying. Um, as we're still in the middle of earnings season at the moment, we've managed to get some good updates on the eye buying industry in general through the companies that are most involved in it. Rory, before we launch into this, can you give us just a really quick reminder on what eye buying is exactly? We had Jason Moser on the podcast, I think, back in September talking about eye buying, but you know, what is the eye buying industry and why is it so disruptive? Yeah, I remember, that was a great interview with Jason, um, hosted well by me, I believe. We should link back to that <laughs> at the end of this. <laughs> The jury's out. Uh, yeah, the, I mean, in terms of buying, yeah, look, it's a relatively novel business model um, in the world of real estate. Most retail, real, realtors operate on a kind of commissions basis, essentially kind of matching buyers with sellers and taking a quota transaction um, with, you know, ancillary services as well to kind of add value. But with buying, which was kind of pioneered by a company called Open Door, um, who we'll discuss later, the idea that actually the company would just buy the property off the seller itself. Um, kind of like a we buy any car model for anyone in the Ireland or the UK. You know, they, they kind of use data models to try and predict what a good price is for the home. Then they may go and do some renovations if they're needed before selling the homes on to a buyer, hopefully uh, for a profit. Um, now, the seller of the home won't get the same amount of money that they probably would get trying to go through the traditional uh, retail retailer, realtor, sorry. Um, but anyone who has tried to sell a house knows it's going to be a long, arduous process with a lot of kind of legal documentation and back and forths, which can hinder mo- hinder moving somewhere else. Um, and people can really kind of feel trapped. So you're not getting the best price, let's say, but in exchange, you're getting a kind of really convenient service that can happen over the course of days rather than months or potentially years. Yeah, absolutely. So let's jump into the companies then. And the first one was Zillow. So as I mentioned already, Zillow pivoted into iBuying and then recently pivoted back out of iBuying, saying it just was the business model wasn't working for them. In Zillow's recent earnings report, uh, it seemed that moving into the iBuying industry could have been one of their biggest successes so far. Can you expand on that a little bit? What did we see from Zillow's earnings? Yeah, I mean, they were in and they were in and out of buy, iBuying like a fiddler's elbow, as my grandmother would say. Um <laughs> Uh, it was it was one of the biggest stories of last year was that Zillow had kind of followed Open Door into this eye buying space quite aggressively. Actually, the founder of Zillow, Rich Barton, had kind of returned to the top job, um, and then kind of really doubled down on the concept in 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 um, in subsequent kind of earnings calls. And it originally looked pretty good, you know, revenue from that segment. Zillow offers like rapidly outpaced the original model. Um, which was kind of about connecting agents with buyers and creating a kind of real estate marketplace. Um, but last year, rather abruptly, they announced they were getting out of iBuying altogether. And uh, as we know, the stock went into free fall. Um, there was plenty of calls for Barton to be sacked. Um, and, and looking back and listening to the reasoning that Barton gave, he essentially said that they couldn't figure the model out, You know, that they tried a model that hadn't particularly worked when house prices were rapidly appreciating. And funnily enough, it actually wasn't that they were paying too much. It was they were paying too little. Um, so they, they decided to get more aggressive. And then when house prices started to moderate, that didn't work either. So they, they just weren't hitting the numbers they wanted to. And in his defense, he said, look, we have this whole other business here that is working. Um, it's not as rapidly growing a business as I buying. But he took to the decision that the volatility in I'm buying was just not worth the risk to the other business. Um, then like last quarter I think we talked about at the time we saw some very good news from them they were selling that inventory faster than they thought they could they were selling them for more than they thought they could 
and they had some kind of very positive comments on the legacy business going forward and how they plan to kind of expand on that legacy business uh, using the lessons they had learned in, in iBuying. Yeah, so I suppose Zillow are protected in the fact that they do have their legacy business to fall back on. Let's look at a company that's maybe more, I suppose, tethered to the idea of iBuying. And you mentioned Open Door. So it seems, you know, in their recent earnings report that widening losses were the, the bogeyman that haunted the quarter. What, do you think iBuying is to blame for this? What, what, can we te- what can we tell about the current state of the iBuying market from Open, Store, Open Door's quarter? Well, I mean, the big question when Zillow left iBuying, I suppose, was is, is the model itself broken? You know, i.e. Yeah. I, are Open Door doomed to follow suit? Um, so two things on that. First of all, Open Door was built as an iBuyer. Uh, you know, time and time again, you do see companies that pivot into a new model that they weren't built for and, and they fail. Um, pivoting is difficult. Uh, just look at a company like Twitter, how long it's taken them to adjust their model. You know, it's been eight years since they since they started trying to trying to fix that, and they're still um, they're still kind of drowned in technical debt. Uh, secondly, unlike Zillow, Open Door don't have another business to worry about. Um, Open Door, you know, it has to work. Uh, that can be a pretty strong motivator for a founder. You know, yeah. if the if the eye buying business doesn't work out, they don't really have anything else. Um, so Open Door, look, the stock's been going, it's been hit hard. I mean, it is one of those high risk, high reward businesses that's, that's you know, that the market has certainly turned on. When they reported last Friday, it wasn't an horrific report. Um, and, you know, it was easy to look at the kind of it dropping 20%, but it, it had gone up 18% the previous day. So, you know, there was a bit of kind of optimism going into the report that maybe didn't pan out, or maybe there was a bit of kind of buy the rumor, sell the news going on there. But yeah, as I said, it wasn't a horrific report. Revenue actually came in well above estimates. Their total home sold in 2021 went up um, 119% to over 21,000. Revenue was up over 200% to 8 billion and forecasts for the next quarter, revenue-wise anyway, were well above um, well above estimates. However, like the company did lose uh, almost twice what analysts were expecting. And, you know, there was a huge, huge increase in costs, a lot of it driven by stock-based compensation, which has absolutely skyrocketed over the last 12 months. So I think there is still a big question hanging over this model and how the costs are going to scale with the business itself. Um, you know, now that Zillow is out of the picture, Open Door essentially owns 77% of this market. So if their plan is to scale scale to profitability, you know, they don't really have much excuses. <laughs> um, yeah. the, the problem is what's going to happen with the costs and can they make this a profitable business? You know, it's still very, very small. When you look at those figures, it's 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 an absolute, you know, drop in the ocean of real estate. So we do have to kind of, I think, wait and see where it goes from here. Absolutely. Emmett, Opendoor is a company within the Horizon portfolio as well. What's your thoughts on, on the company itself and, and the wider industry? Mm. I'm a big believer in it, James. I believe that it is the last one of the last remaining bastions that the internet hasn't fully disrupted. And Eric Wu, the CEO of Open Door, said recently, and I quote, he said, I really like saying if you're not comfortable with being misunderstood for long periods of time, you probably shouldn't do anything new or interesting. One of the things we talk about internally is to have a Hulk mentality. What that means to us is that it's important to build strength through adversity. And so as things get more difficult and things will always be very hard, whatever you do, you should find strength. So when it comes to investors saying yes or no, I think there are times we have to say, I firmly believe in what we are building and to be misunderstood for long periods of time. And I think that, That's you a know, great uh, <laughs> yes, it is a great quote because it does sum it up. Like when you look at any disruptive industry and you can, we could we talk about them all the time here. 
for the longest time in their early days, they are misunderstood. I mean, one of my favourite examples is that 17 years after Apple floated, it was still up 0.00%. And that was a misunderstood industry, or at least the the true future value of that business was not uh, fully understood for 17 years. So I'm not saying that Open Door is the next Apple by no stretch, but what I do think is that it is absolutely in prime position to disrupt an industry that previously had layers of skills that were very human-led with a sign being hammered into the front garden and, and professionally accredited individuals showing prospective buyers around the home and that whole model has been disrupted and I think it's going to take a while before the business fully unlocks and realizes that true potential but I do believe Open Door will do that. What do you think Rory's Peloton just mi- misunderstood still? Yeah, I think <laughs> you're so you bad. Always, you always have to throw some at me. <laughs> sorry, sorry, sorry. We'll move on. Uh, so for the last few yes weeks, yes is the answer, though. By the way, <laughs> I couldn't let you away, Roy. I'm sorry. Um, so for the last few weeks, we've done a quick fire round on some of the companies that reported earnings recently. We're back with it again this week. We've got four companies on our list here, so I'm going to shoot them out at you guys, and I want your quick TLDRs on them. So. Uh, Emmett, let's go to the pandemic darling Zoom first. Uh, Zoom stock has been on a downward spiral since last summer. Was there anything in this recent report that gave you hope for the company? Yeah, there was. I mean, like, so um, they reported weaker than expected revenue forecast for the first quarter and for the first, uh, for the full fiscal year there on Monday. Um, How did it do? Well, quarterly earnings came in for Zoom at $1.29 per share adjusted versus about $1.06 per share as expected by the average opinion of all the analysts out there. It brought in revenue of just over a billion dollars, $1.07 billion versus $1.05 billion. Uh, the revenue increased 21% from the year earlier period, ending 31st of January, which uh, is down a little bit from the 35% growth in the prior quarter. But when you go to Yahoo Finance and just look at the financials, when you go into the homepage of Yahoo Finance and type in ZM, and just scroll down a little bit to the right hand side, it shows you the year on year growth in revenue and bottom line earnings. Um, and when you just look at what the business has achieved, I, I, albeit as a result, I suppose, of the, the work at home and stay at home environment that we're in, it's absolutely unbelievable. Like, think about this in their 2022 financial year, they made about $1.4 billion bottom line profit off top line sales of about $4 billion. Two years earlier, they barely eked out a profit from something like $622 million in sales. And the stock price is now precisely where it was two years ago. So those numbers, again, it had a bottom line profit of $1.4 billion. And the share price is pretty much where it was pre-pandemic. Now, when we look ahead for the current financial year, the company sees $4.5 billion in revenue, which is a 10% growth. So whether the virus is fully over, partially over, or, or any, anything in between, um, uh, you know, they are going to grow by 10% in the year ahead. And analysts were looking for $4.7 billion. So, of course, $4.5 billion is a disappointing announcement to the average opinion. And shares are smashed and thrown into the skip. Uh, what's the name of a skip in America? Is it, is it a dumpster? Dumpster. A dumpster, yeah. So, <laughs> shares, were, <laughs> shares were thrown into the dumpster. See them uh, so close to 70% off its all-time highs. Uh, any good news from the recent quarter, Rory? I know they're in a bit of trouble in India, which we talked about last week, I think. So, I mean, this this is one of those reports, and you get them every now and again, where the headline numbers are so impressive. You think this is 
this is going to the moon. This <laughs> when you first see see what's what they're what they're posting, and um, like revenue grew th- to three point two billion. That was one hundred and six percent growth year over year. Pro- gross profits are up one hundred and forty percent. And those revenue numbers are way above analysts' ex- expectations. Losses were a little wider than expected, but of course this is it's still very much a growth story. And um, sales on their e-commerce platform were up eighty nine percent. Gross merchandise volume hit eighteen billion, up fifty two percent. And number of orders was up was over two billion for the first time, so up ninety percent. So like, those numbers look great. Um, however, there was one particular problem that was lying just below uh, those headline figures that has spooked investors a bit. Um, that was that was their gaming segment, and again, looked very good at first. Revenue more than doubled. Uh, but then we get into this idea of bookings. Now, bookings is an important metric to look at in gaming companies. Um, bookings is essentially products or services that have been paid for already but which haven't been booked as revenue so uh if i was to pay you know for a year subscription for example they wouldn't book all that money as revenue they would book the first three quarters as revenue uh for one quarter and then the next three months the following quarter exactly so bookings gives you a kind of clearer outlook in terms of future trends and and last year bookings in their gaming division grew 111 percent and this quarter they only grew seven percent uh, so look, that's a steep, steep drop in growth, and, and you, you know you can blame some of that on reopenings. Of course, there's less people playing playing video games. There's you know there's changes that Apple have made to digital tracking, which I know has hurt a lot of uh, digital based businesses, particularly gaming businesses. And like I said, we did talk about them being taken offline in India. So all of that could have an impact on this. Um, now, looking at the bigger picture, the reason why this is spooking investors so much is because it is that gaming segment that is the profit driver in this business it's the part of the business that basically fuels the other two it fuels it fuels shoppy it fuels c payments so if we start seeing a real slowdown in profits generated through gaming that's less free cash to invest in those other growth opportunities now i still like the business i still like management i think they can you know figure out other ways to to, to juice um the growth in that business um, but it is it is kind of I can understand investors' concern okay, this week. Cool, thanks for that. Back to you, Emmett. And let's you took a look at Planet Fitness's recent quarter. Um, is the great reopening still fueling this gym chain? Um, it is yes. Um, just to rem- again, I'm going to do another teledoc on this. I'll just remind our listeners what Planet Fitness does. They have around two thousand gyms, as you said. They they it's ten bucks a month to join the gym, and they promote themselves on friendly staff and um branded equipment and what was it we discussed but judgment free zone where judgment some dude went zone, in yeah and wore no clothing because he, oh, he didn't want to be judged God, that's going back into the archives <laughs> that could have been two years ago we talked about that anyway look it's so it's market cap it's a seven billion dollar gym chain two thousand outlets it's profitable uh just burly and yes it's had fairly lumpy revenue and earnings as a result of of the virus of course where their gyms were shut and in fact, their share price fared very well considering the two years we've just come through. It kind of just had a, a slight hiccup, but kept on growing. Anyway, they reported their fourth quarter results last Thursday, a week ago today for us. Um, and at the end of January, uh, Planet Fitness had uh, 15.6 million members, which surpasses their pre-pandemic peak. And it's been driven by Gen Z, which I think is people born between like uh, 1996 and 2012, 1997, 2012. Uh, so that was their fastest growing demographic. They announced that nearly two thirds of members have upgraded to the black card, which is their $23 a month option as opposed to 10 bucks an option. And it gives customers access to all of their 2000 gyms in the US 
and other perks like tanning beds and guest passes and that kind of stuff. So their net income for the three month period that ended in December 31st fell to about $5.7 million or seven cent per share compared to $8.7 million or 11 cent a share uh, a year earlier. Total sales uh, jumped 37% to $184 give or take from $133 a year earlier and at topped estimates for $179 million. It's a a nice business. Lads, here, I have a question. Have either either of you ever been on a tanning bed? (laughs) Would you pay pay the extra, you know, 14 bucks a month for... Look! Look at my so, pasty skin. I would burn to a crisp. <laughs> Rory, come on! You must have been on a tanning bed. Rory's out in Portugal at a minute, so he doesn't need a tanning bed. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I don't think I need any more cartilage <laughs> around me. So yeah, Planet Fitness. It's nice. I like the business. It's growing and it seems back on trend. And hopefully, we're done with viruses. And and I think their business's growth will resume. So maybe tanning beds are a new mega trend we should we should investigate and we might get a podcast episode out of that. Let's <laughs> move on r- quickly. Uh, Rory, going over to the artist formerly known as Square, what's the latest with Jack Dorsey and the newly named Block? <laughs> hey. uh, yeah, pretty solid. It was a pretty solid uh, growth for the quarter for, um, for Block. As you said, formerly Square, the company saw overall revenue of 29%, gross profit, which is essentially the revenue they derive from from those fees, less any charges, was up 62% for the year to 4.42 billion. Um, that was driven by a 69% increase in gross profit for the cash app and a 54% increase for Square. Um, the companies continue to invest heavily in the cash app. Growth in Bitcoin revenue has stalled a bit, which we have seen across a number of uh, companies. I know we talked about it a lot when we discussed Robinhood a couple of few weeks a few weeks ago. Um, but that's not a huge issue for Square. It's it's a very low margin part of their revenue makeup. So um Square, which which by I mean the merchant side of the business now, not the whole company, which is now called Block, as you point out. Uh that seems to be recovering well after the pandemic revenues up forty nine percent. Um they've seen some kind of strong growth in payments volumes, particularly from larger cohort larger customer cohorts which it shows that they are moving up the market, which is very important for this business. Um, we didn't get a huge amount of color on kind of any new moves into uh, blockchain technology or anything like that. They seem to be kind of focusing right now on integrating that afterpay acquisition, mm. um, which you know has, I think, a lot of potential opportunities there for it, but could as well uh, have some kind of regulatory scrutiny that might have, investors might be a little bit spooked yeah. about. Okay, cool. Thanks for that. So remember, our analyst team posts daily updates on all the companies in our shortlist that have reported earnings in the My Wall Street app. So you can head over there to keep up to date on all of that. We've also some other interesting things going on in My Wall Street at the moment. We have a new stock of the month being added on Monday. Rory, can you give us any clue on that? But uh, b- b- uh, I'm not writing it, so I'm not writing it, so no. <laughs> Fair, okay. Um, Absolutely no clue. <laughs> informative as always. Uh, we've also got a first look analysis of Confluence being added to the um, app next Wednesday. That's where Mike will break down Confluence as an investment opportunity and outline the things he likes and the things he doesn't like about the stock. Um, don't forget, we also have a new audio feature in the My Wall Street mobile app, which means that you can listen to all of these insights if you don't have time to read them. And finally, one last thing to mention, keep an eye out next week for a special episode of the Stock Club podcast. Uh, in this episode coming out early next week, you can listen to Anne-Marie recount the full rise and fall of MoviePass, the first edition of our Cautionary Tales series. If you'd like to read and listen to more of these Cautionary Tales, we've just launched a brand new one in the My Wall Street app today. 
that's Friday, uh, and this one is about the South Seas bubble of 1720, so you can listen to this for free by simply creating an account at mywallstreet.com. Let's move on to mailbag, guys, and for this week's mailbag, I've kind of taken a few questions we've gotten in about one of the best performing stocks in my Wall Street, which is Shopify, and mashed them together, because since November, Shopify has been on, down, on a downward trend and lost nearly 60% of its value. Um, Rory, what's going on over at Shopify, and has anything happened recently that's changed your underlying thesis on the company? I think, you know, if you were looking at the stock performance of Shopify over the last couple of months, I think you definitely would think there was serious trouble in the business. Um, if you look at kind of the business performance, I think there's a, there's a very different picture. You know, just over the last two years, the company has tripled revenue. It's doubled both gross merchandise volume and the number of merchants on its platform. Um, now, you know, it, it obviously was a kind of pandemic darling uh, and has kind of followed a couple of other e-commerce companies um, downwards since since the reopening has occurred, and suddenly people can shop elsewhere than just on their um, their phones and their on their laptops. But let me take you back a little bit further, to, I think, to try and really understand this. Um, about over a year ago, we were talking, or there was quite a lot of talk, particularly in tech circles, probably not from you know the average Joe on the street, about a change to Apple's pri- uh, privacy policy. Um, which came to be known as their app tracking transparency initiative. It it didn't seem like a huge thing at the time, or at least to people outside the tech industry, it didn't uh, seem like a big thing on, at the time. But essentially what this did was it allowed users, or not so much, it didn't, it, it, people think it allowed users to turn off tracking, but what actually was happening was Apple had allowed users to turn off uh, tracking on their iPhone since about 2012. But a new policy meant meant that it was off by default. So people actually had to yeah. turn it on. Um, now, this may seem like a pretty small change, but, you know, we've talked on the show and, and plenty in the app about how important default positions can be. Um, a com- the company that, of course, was most put at risk by these changes was Facebook. Uh, and Facebook management made their objections to this very, very clear. They launched a very uh, public campaign against Apple, uh, saying that they were harming millions of small and medium-sized businesses. Facebook always standing up for the small businesses. (laughs) 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 Yeah, I mean, there's an element to that. There is an element to that. Um, But first of all, let's think about Facebook here, okay? The, The changes that Apple made what they did was they severed a very important link in Facebook's advertising model. So previously, Facebook was able to kind of track what a user saw, what kind of advertisements a user saw. And then when they were on a different site, um, you know, making a purchase or buying a subscription or whatever, Facebook was able to see what ha- that happening as well. And so they could link essentially two yeah. events. And that was really important. Um, it helped advertisers refine their advertising so you know they could see what was working what wasn't working and it helped facebook kind of continually improve their advertising as effectiveness um just by you know even seeing things the, the way certain customers behave um the changes that as facebook predicted the changes have really hurt them they announced last month that this was going to cost the company around 10 billion dollars in revenue next year um and and uh, that loss is likely to to hit uh, income very much as well because it probably is going to result in lower pricing, which means lower margins. Um, so you know, it, and and as we've seen, the the Facebook stock has come down from as down about fifty percent from its all time highs. Um, however, that's not the only people they hurt. And we we know this. We don't know. We don't have exact numbers on kind of small and medium sized businesses, but we have heard that you know uh, from kind of uh, industry experts. 
that um, businesses that relied on online advertising have seen their revenues drop anywhere from kind of 10 to 40%. And uh, anecdotally, I can tell you as someone who works for a small business that relies on uh, online advertising, it had, those, those changes were difficult yeah. to navigate. Um, but how does this link into Shopify? Well, Shopify is the largest e-commerce platform for small and medium-sized businesses. It's got over a million subscribers. Shopify's success is very much tied to a subscriber success. And, you know, if small and medium-sized businesses are losing revenue, that is going to impact Shopify. Um, now, I don't think that's entirely at the, at, at the root end, but I mean, if you track Shopify's stock with Facebook's stock, they overlap pretty well over the last couple of months. Shopify's also had to do, you know, they've had to make other changes as well. Um, for example, you know, they have, they're putting a huge amount of money into their fulfillment network, uh, essentially kind of copying Amazon's model that's going to cost a lot of money. And it, it does change this company from what was a real asset light software provider to a rather capital intensive kind of hybrid of software and services. And, you know, investors don't particularly want to pay the same multiples for the latter as they would have for the, for the, for the former. Um, but I do think that's kind of short term mentality. And in the long run, I do believe those investments will pay at long term. Um, and I believe you know, with the Facebook issue, Facebook's making massive investments to to correct on their side. And I think Shopify with its size and scale could even potentially become a, a solution to that problem and help small and medium sized businesses through okay, its scale. Well, interesting. Um, thanks for that, Rory. Let's move on then and finish out today's pod or episode with the elevator pitch as always. So it's March and March is Women's History Month. So Let's. I ask both of you guys to pitch me on this episode your favorite female-led company or your favorite female business leader. Rory, you spent a, a good while talking there, so I'm going to go to you first. Uh, what's your favorite female-led company or your uh, favorite female business leader? Mm, well, to prepare, I had a look through the 2021 50 fastest-growing women-owned and women-led companies list available online. It was quite interesting to see that of these businesses, the average honoree's age was 49 years of age. Uh, she started with 74% of uh, their own funds. So the founder coughed up in 74% of the times their own funding to start the business. Uh, two thirds of those businesses now uh, operate globally and another 18% plan to go global in the future. Uh, three out of four do business with Fortune 1000 companies. Three out of four delivered a new product or service line within their traditional portfolio as part of their growth strategy in response to COVID. So really, there's so many wonderful choices out there. But of all the powerful and inspiring female business leaders, I'm going to go with a business born in Galway um, here in Ireland, and it's called Spotlight Oral Care. And it was co-founded by sisters, Dr. Lisa Craven and Dr. Vanessa Craven, and a company which develops and sells products such as toothpaste and teeth whitening kits and toothbrushes and so on was founded in 2016 by three dentists the two sisters i mentioned lisa and vanessa and a gentleman called barry buckley um and all 17 of the company's products have been created by the brand's founders the company also makes its product line from sustainable inputs for example its toothpaste toothpaste tube is made from sugar cane and is fully recyclable um and as it stands about 10 billion tubes of toothpaste are not recycled each year, meaning that they end up in landfills most of the time. So the company recently raised $12 million on investment and it's going to help it continue their international expansion in Europe and the US. And they're expected to triple again in the next three years. And if I could invest in a business, this is the one I'd invest in. 
So still a private company, but definitely one to, to keep mm-hmm. an eye out on over the next few yeah. years. Thanks for that, Emmett. Yeah. Uh, Rory, what about yourself? Uh, I'm going to go with a relatively new public company uh, business called Bumble. For those who are past the dating app phase of your life, Bumble is a competitor to Tinder in the dating space, but has since branched out into networking, networking both for friendship and professional purposes. Um, it's a business with a focus on empowering women and as such was founded and is run by uh, a woman called Whitney Wolf Hurd. Um, her resume is just incredibly impressive. <laughs> While still in college, Wolf Hurd started two non-profit organizations focused on fashion to raise funds for people uh, affected by human trafficking and climate change, both of which received national attention. Uh, after college, she went, start, she went uh, to a startup in IHC Hatch Labs, where she was one of the first employees. I don't know if she was actually an employee, but it was uh, ended up being Tinder. Um, and there have been reports that she actually came up with the name and was critical in fueling the popularity of it uh, across college campuses. She ended up leaving Tinder in 2014 after um, a mishap with other managers. Uh, she ended up filing a lawsuit against them, which she won. Um, she went on to found Bumble, which at one point was part of Badoo, which was a popular dating app in South America and, and parts of Southern Europe. But Bumble quickly became the primary revenue driver of that business. And Wolford was made CEO of the whole, of the whole company. Uh, so look, it's it's a company that's had a tough first few years in the public markets, but I really like the business. I love the mission the values that Wolf Heard instills in the company. Um, and if I was going to make a bet on a jockey investment anytime soon, she would be very, very yeah, high really, on my list. Yeah, really, interesting company. I think it was Anne-Marie brought my attention at first. And, you know, the, especially their international expansion and, and the, the personalizations they do on the product in different companies is really, really, countries, I mean, is really interesting. Thanks for that, lads. And that is it for today's show. So remember, if you have any questions you'd like us to answer or elevator pitches you'd like us to tackle, make sure to get in touch. You can find us on Twitter. That's at my Wall Street HQ. On TikTok, that's at my Wall Street, or simply just email us at pod at mywallstreet.com. That's P O D at mywallstreet.com. If you're enjoying the show, make sure to tell your friends about us and don't forget to leave us a review or a rating on whatever platform you listen to us on. Thanks for joining us today, and we'll talk to you next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.